In our lesson two weeks ago, we talked about the cross and its meaning. We looked at a simple acrostic using the word cross to delve into its meaning, beginning with the sea, with the compassion, the compassion that motivated the sacrifice of Christ, the deep, matchless, abounding love. Then we move to the redemption that is made possible only through the cross, to the oneness that is achieved through the cross in the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to the salvation that is ours, the separation also that is required. Because indeed, the cross requires us to separate from the world. Oh yes, to continue to live in it, but not to live of the world. Today I want us to think about another aspect of the cross of Jesus Christ, and that is its motivation. You know, one of the great old hymns that we sing, the old rugged cross, reminds us of how the cross should motivate us. Oh, that old rugged cross, so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction to me, a wondrous attraction. There's a magnetism in the cross. There's a motivation that should be there supremely in those who truly contemplate and fully understand what took place on Calvary, as we will sing in just a few moments that burdens are lifted because of Calvary. In John 12, 32, Jesus spoke to the motivation of the cross. He spoke to the magnetism of the cross. When he said, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. Notice it. I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. That suggests clearly the cross has a magnetism, and it is also a clear reference to his being crucified. Because the lifting up to which he refers is the lifting up on Calvary. The lifting up of the cross and that, that lifting up, that sacrifice and everything associated with that and involved in that will have a magnetizing and a motivational influence on right thinking people. Oh yes, I know to the world for the most part. The message of the cross as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1 is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved it is the power of of God, the drawing power of God. We're not forced to come to Jesus, not at all. We're drawn to him and to the cross, and the cross is the crucial element, the central element. As we think this morning about the motivation of the cross, let me suggest to you that we are drawn to the cross, that we are drained at the cross, and then we are driven by the cross driven from the cross, if you will, to lead a life of totally dedicated service to God. And what is the key? Love is the key. Love is the key because love draws us to Calvary. In John 3.16, the golden text of the Bible, as we so often call it, Jesus said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Two verses prior to that, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent, 
the serpent rather in the wilderness, even so shall the Son of Man be lifted up, a reference to the cross. And then two verses later, for God so loved the world that he gave, he lifted him up. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son to be lifted up on Calvary and to draw all peoples to himself. Again, back to John 12, 32. And so what we have here is a clear picture of the motivational power of the cross if it is properly contemplated and properly understood. We love him because he first loved us, John writes in 1 John four nineteen. And where was that love manifested in its fullest extent? Where did that love culminate? It culminated at Calvary. But you know, God's love has always been the overwhelming drawing power in Moses' day and under the law of Moses. The greatest commandment was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first and great commandment under the law. The second is like to it, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But in every dispensation of time, as we have talked about before, God has always, always conducted himself toward man in such a way as to produce in man a reciprocal love for what God has done for him. And that's true under that law of Moses that was simply a law that was to point us to a better law. But it was still a law of love. In Deuteronomy 28, 45, beginning, Moses, as he addressed that second generation of Israelites about to enter the promised land because the first faithless generation had fallen in the wilderness, he set before that group of people blessings and curses. And concerning the curses, he said this, Moreover, here's the warning, Moreover, all these curses will come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. Why, Moses? Verse 47. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. What a statement. What a beautiful summary statement of everything we are to be about and everything they were to be about if indeed they were going to continually be blessed by God. And that was, you've got to serve, yes. But you serve, why? With joy, because of the abundance of everything, you serve with joy and gladness of heart. That's what God has always wanted. But that is what God has always done in his dealings with man to produce that kind of joy, to produce a gladness of heart to produce that gratitude. You see, love draws us to the cross. If love was to draw the people of God in former times to Him, based upon what He did for them before Calvary, then what about the drawing power of love for those of us living on this side of the cross? What kind of drawing power should that have if we're thinking as we should? Well, it should draw us to Calvary, and it should drain us there. When we come to Calvary, as it were, we should be drained of self-interest there at the cross. Drained by denying self. Isn't that the way Paul put it in Galatians 2 and verse 20? A very familiar text to us, I am sure. When he said, I am crippled by Christ. Is that what it reads? No. I am crucified with Christ. God doesn't want us to be crippled 
with Christ. In other words, just simply sick to the world. He wants us dead to it. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's the key. Here's why I'm crucified with Christ, because he loved me and gave himself for me. He was crucified. I'm going to crucify self. I am going to no longer live the way I once lived. A complete change. In Luke 9, passages we have looked at on more than one occasion, but we need to keep looking at them to remind ourselves of what Jesus deserves and what Jesus demands of those who would be his disciples. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. We go over to the 14th chapter of Luke's account of the gospel, and at verse 26, we read these words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And we've talked about the fact that hate there does not mean hostility. It means love less, to love less. And so you can't come to me, Jesus said, and love your father more than you love me, or love your mother more than you love me. You can't come to me and love your wife more than you love me. I know how much I love my wife, and I know husbands here, hopefully every one of you know how much you love your wife, but do we realize that as much as we love our wives, the Lord wants us to love him more, and do our lives demonstrate that? Brothers, sisters, yes, and then finally he gets to your own life also. You cannot be my disciple unless that is the case. Then verse 27 of Luke 14, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Then you go over to verse 33 of that 14th chapter. Jesus says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus didn't give us those requirements to restrict us and to make us unhappy or to punish us. Just the opposite. He gave us those requirements so that we could be supremely happy, so that our joy could be the fullest possible joy and our peace could truly be a peace that surpasses all understanding because you see, as we've said before, the true joy, the greatest joy is in complete commitment. And anything short of that robs us of the greatest joy in our lives, Christianity, live to the fullest extent of our abilities, and it robs God of the kind of service that he so richly deserves and so clearly demands. And why does he demand it? And why does he deserve it? Because Christ emptied himself in coming to the cross. A passage about which we have spoken often depicts it so beautifully, and that is Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 through 8, where the admonition there from the Apostle Paul is, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. The immediate context there is a mind of suffering, because that's the context. In other words, you be prepared to suffer because he was prepared, he was prepared to suffer, and he did suffer. But then Paul goes on in that text, 
to tell us who being in the form of God, verse 6 of Philippians 2, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. We've mentioned before the American Standard Translation there says, but emptied himself in verse 7. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man or men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus emptied himself. Oh, he was still deity when he lived among men. He demonstrated that deity time and time again. But he emptied himself of equality with God, a position that is impossible for finite minds to fully appreciate, and yet Jesus obviously appreciated it, and yet he gave it up. He gave it up. And so we are to be drained of self-interest at the cross. At the cross... We are to be drained of our pride and filled with humility. We're to be drained of fear and filled with forgiveness and a forgiving spirit toward others. We're to be drained of self and filled with the Savior and His love and seek from that day forward to emulate every characteristic that the Savior demonstrated as He lived among us. You see, we go to the cross guilty, we come away from it grateful. From guilt to gladness. How many times have we talked about that transformation process that took place the first time the gospel was ever preached? In Acts chapter 2, remember? And when Peter, in the culmination of that sermon, part of which is recorded for us there at verse 36, he said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this same Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said, Men and brethren, or said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? I've asked this before. What was the emotion that dominated the minds of those who asked that question at that time? No doubt it was fear based upon guilt, tremendous guilt. Much like the guilt that Saul of Tarsus had to have felt when he encountered the Lord on the Damascus Road, realized he had been persecuting the very cause that he should have long since embraced, and he wouldn't eat or drink for three days after being told to go on into the city of Damascus, and there it would be told him what he must do to be saved. These people were filled with guilt, and they wanted to know, how do I get rid of it? Is there any way to get rid of the guilt of crucifying the very son of the living God. They obviously believed what they had heard, and so Peter picked them up from that point and said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now you drop down to verse 40. With many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And verse 41 is a key, pivotal passage. Then those who what? who guiltily received his word. No. Then those who gladly received his word. Those who gladly received the word, and you see the process already occurring, filled overflowing with guilt in their hearts, and now they hear there's a way out, and here's what we must do. And those who gladly heard that and said, this is the way out, they were baptized. 
And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And verse 42 says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And let me ask you now, what is the emotion that dominates their minds as they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? Fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. It's not guilt. I guarantee it's not guilt. I can guarantee you it wasn't recognition of duty. I can almost guarantee you it wasn't fear of hell. Not predominantly. It was gratitude and love for being told there's a way out of the awful guilt of crucifying the Christ, the Son of the living God. And they were all together, those who believed. Verse 44, they had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. You don't do that out of guilt and fear. I don't believe. You don't react the way the early church did because you're still ridden with guilt or you're filled with fear or that you just recognize this is what I've got to do. So continuing daily, verse 46, with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food. Well, we don't have to speculate anymore. With gladness and simplicity of heart, from guilt to gladness, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Oh, yes, we go to the cross guilty, but we come away grateful. And filled with gladness. And that gratitude intensifies the longer we live, or it should. And that love deepens the longer we live the Christian life. And the longer we serve. You know, Joe Weir ended our class with a beautiful statement today. When we asked, isn't it nice to think that you would have four people who would carry you like those four men carried the paralytic? And break through a roof to get you to Jesus? And Joe said, I think if every one of us has about 60 or so right here, quite of, that would do that. Great statement. It's the way it should be. And so we're drawn to the cross. By the love that is manifested there, we are drained at the cross of self and filled with the Savior. And thus, finally, we are driven or compelled by the cross to live lives of loving service and sacrifice. Wasn't that Paul's appeal to the Roman Christians in Romans 12, 1 beginning, when he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. Stop right there. Paul could have said, I command you, brethren, by the authority invested in me as an apostle of Christ. He had that authority. And he exercised authority. But in this case, he said, I beseech you, I'm begging you, brethren. And here's my basis for the begging. By the mercies of God. By the mercies. Consider his mercy, consider what he's done, and therefore I beseech you, based on those mercies, to present, and that word presents in a tense that indicates a once and for all, lay it on the line presentation. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not literally stop being conformed to this world and be, keep on being transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God.
2 Corinthians 5, 14, 15, one of my favorite passages in all of the scriptures, is a passage that best summarizes the process we've been describing. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, Paul wrote, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul said, I, I get it. <laughs> I get it. What I get is that because Christ died, I was able to die through him. He didn't die just for me. He died instead of me. And that just overwhelms me. That compels me. That surrounds me with a love that motivates me supremely. Paul was drawn to the cross. And yes, he was drained at the cross. Listen to Philippians 3, 4 through 8. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, he says, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I am more so. And here's my background, he says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All of these accolades, all of these accomplishments, all of these positions I had as a Pharisee, as a Jew extraordinaire, it's garbage when contrasted to what I have in Christ. He was drained at the cross. And then in that same Philippian letter, in the same chapter, verses 13 and 14, he reminds us he was driven by the cross. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the, upward, or for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Forgetting the things that are behind and focusing on the things that are ahead. You see, the Apostle Paul underwent the kind of change that he begged the Romans to make sure they had undergone. A complete transformation. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Transformed. That word, transformed, comes from the word from which we get our word metamorphosis. The metamorphosis from caterpillars to butterflies. And the Lord willing, Adam Evans will be with us next week on Sunday morning, but the week following, Lord willing, we're going to look at another aspect of the cross, specifically the metamorphosis of the cross. That is the complete change that we should experience because of the cross. From caterpillars to butterflies. That's what we think about generally when we think of metamorphosis. We think about that process by which the less than attractive caterpillar becomes a beautiful butterfly. And incidentally, that process, if I recall correctly, is not an easy process for the caterpillar. It's a real struggle. But it's all worth it when it's over. For the Christian life, there are struggles as well. But even in the struggles, there is comfort. 
even in the struggles that we have to endure from time to time. It's not a question of struggling now and rejoicing later for the Christian. Even in the struggles we have to endure and are called upon to endure, we still have that joy in the Lord that can never be taken away from us because of that confidence that we have in Christ. Yes, we'll talk, Lord willing, more about that metamorphosis, that complete change from cares to caring, from doubts to daring, and from selfishness to sharing. Complete change. Have you undergone that change this morning? Can you say that indeed you have had your burdens lifted at Calvary as we are about to sing? You can if you have been to Calvary in the sense that you've obeyed the terms that are set forth by the one who shed his sinless blood there. That you've believed in him, John 8, 24. That you've repented of every sin, Luke 13, 3. That you have confessed him before men, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, and that you have been buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins, Mark 16, 16. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. If you've done those things, you've been to Calvary in the only way you can go there. You can't go there and kneel at the cross and pray for salvation. You can obey for salvation because that's what the New Testament teaches us we must do. And have you been then completely drained at Calvary and driven from the cross? And are you continually driven and motivated by love and serving faithfully today? If there's someone here who cannot say that and whose life reflects a life that has partaken more of the world than it has of the next world since becoming a Christian, come home in repentance and confession and with a plea to brothers and sisters and most of all a prayer to God that those sins will be forgiven. And if you truly repent, they will. And again, you can be restored to your first love, the love that once drew you to the cross, drained you there, and drove you for a time to serve the Lord. If you need to respond, will you come now as we stand to sing to encourage you?